You may not like what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm not afraid to speak out. I think that the music in hell for eternally be some of this rock music with all its vulgarities. And to another episode of Lost in the Catacombs. Your host, Josh, back with you yet again for episode number 14 of your favorite extreme music podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. And thanks for listening last week for arguably our biggest guest so far, John from Black Braid joined the show and what a fun discussion that was and yeah the reception was really cool and just seeing everybody spread the word and seeing you know just the positive responses from everyone that was really cool too I know I thank everyone week in and week out for that but truly I do appreciate it but yeah we are back yet again for an episode featuring a black metal artist who I say this every week, the the title of the episode gives it away, but uh, we'll introduce them a little bit later. This one more so of the blackened doom metal style, but nonetheless, another great guest who is doing extraordinary things in the extreme music scene right now. As always, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. I do want to share my socials and email and issue a few reminders to everyone. You can follow me on Twitter at Catacombs Media, on Instagram at Lost Catacombs Media. You can find me on Facebook by doing a simple search for Lost in the Catacombs. You can also find me on Substack featuring interviews with various international bands at lostinthecatacombs.substack.com. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out at Lost in the Catacombs podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you do dig the show, feel free to subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you listen. And leave me a five-star review if you do dig the show. Like I said, that is the best way to support this podcast. Leaving a review is completely free and, like I said, helps me out tremendously, so I appreciate anyone who does that. But again, I appreciate anyone who is listening to yet another episode of the podcast anyway. But before we go any further, let's jump into some metal news for the week. Again, as always... Some of this might not be underground metal news, but it is metal news nonetheless. And the first story that I came across this week was in regards to Dave Mustaine and Metallica, where Dave Mustaine said they are on better terms now than they've been in a long time, to paraphrase. And this is sourced by... The publication Heavy Consequence is at, at consequence.net. So 
Yeah, very interesting. He said, it took a while for James and Lars and I to kind of come around and become friends again, but I would say we're probably better off now than we've been for a long time. And it comes and it goes. I think the emotions between all of us, it's probably understandable for a lot of people who break up with someone. It's like a marriage and you part ways and sometimes you try and justify in your head the decision that you make. I guess that's good to hear that their relationship is better than it's been in a long time. I understand the the bitterness, I guess, to an extent on Dave's part, but on the other side of the coin, I've always thought to myself, like, he's also in one of the most successful metal bands of all time as well. Definitely in the top 10 most successful metal bands ever. And I know Metallica is the most successful metal band of all time, but... Yeah, that one always just kind of struck me weird. I know the way that it ended and everything was harsh and everybody saw that and heard those stories on the Some Kind of Monster documentary or whatever, but yeah, that one always just struck me weird that he held that bitterness for such a long time, but yeah, I see both sides of it. But 40 years later and you went on to have great success and I don't know. I don't know if it comes down to the money side of things or what, but obviously Metallica has grossed more money, but, you know, both have legendary albums that will stand the test of time. So, yeah, I guess it's cool to see that they're on good terms now. Maybe we'll see some kind of big four show again down the road or something. But, yeah, cool to see that, I guess. But like I said... At some point, you just kind of got to get over it. Just kind of got to get over it. And in other news, touring news specifically, we are in the swing of fall tours. And just the other day, according to an article on Metal Injection, Exodus is going out on tour and they are bringing Fit for an Autopsy, Darkest Hour, and Undeath. Pretty cool tour and Awesome to see Exodus taking out some younger bands for some more exposure. I love the guys in Undeath. Such a fun death metal band doing cool things right now. And also, according to the article, it says that Exodus is working on their debut album for Napalm Records, which Gary Holt recently said in an Instagram post that riffing out hard AF fully in writing mode now, assembling the pieces of the next album opener. Most brutal, crushing thing ever. I am stoked. Very. Why so heavy? That is awesome to hear that we're getting new Exodus material here, I guess, relatively soon. But yeah, this tour is awesome for some of these younger bands on there with Undeath, Darkest Hour, Fit for an Autopsy. Going to be awesome to see Undeath kick that night off wherever you see them on tour i guess so and then followed by some heavy hitters in darkest hour and fit for an autopsy and finally ending the night with exodus is no bad night at all they are making the trek all across the united states so check out the tour dates i'm sure it's coming to a city near you if you live in illinois you guys are getting two stops in illinois and then we are getting one in fort wayne indiana here So, yeah, pretty cool to see. They're, like I said, making the trek all across the country. So if you want to see that, you'll be able to. 
All right, I think we have a couple news items out of the way, so let's go ahead and introduce today's guest. Today we will be joined by the man behind the solo blackened doom metal project, Mismore. ALN will join the show to talk a little bit about his new Mismore record, Prosaic, which is out right now on Profound Lore Records. If you are unfamiliar with Mismore, here is a quick synopsis courtesy of Profound Lore Records. Mismore is a one-man heavy music exploration that began in 2012 as a way of dealing with the mental and spiritual anguish that mastermind ALN feels as a person. More specifically, the content behind the project is that of the existential, primal, and innate musings about cause, purpose, self, and God. It is the search for light and truth, or the fact that there is none. It comes from a burned, confused, and broken heart. It is the fight for survival when reason and foundation has turned to nothingness. It is the crashing down of towers of falsehood and the freedom that comes through a certain kind of grief. Ultimately, Mismore is the manifestation of long-felt depression. And again, the new record, Prosaic, is out right now. Such an emotional, heavy listen for anyone who chooses to tune in. So check that out if you haven't already. But first, let's take a listen to a clip from the record Prosaic. This song is called No Place to Arrive. ALN, we're just a few days away from the release of your new record, Prosaic. How are the feelings right now? Are you just as excited as you usually get for an upcoming record? Or is there something a little bit more special about this one? I know there's a few unique things about this record that you know, you've talked about in some press material for the release of the record. But just overall, how are you feeling about this one leading up to it? I am pretty excited. Uh, I usually get pretty excited to share uh, new work. It's kind of like a creative baby being born that you've spent all this time uh, forming. And so, yeah, the uh, the hype is there for me. It's also uh, about 10 days before we go out on tour. So uh, it's, it's exciting, but also stressful. There's lots going on, uh, lots of yeah. prep, lots of prep. So, yeah, right, looking forward to it, though. Have you had a record come out this close to touring? No. So is that adding a little bit more pressure or are you just like, is that just amping you up a little bit more to, you know, get out there and play some of the new material? 
Yeah, uh, exactly. I, I figure it's kind of the way it's supposed to be done, and I've never actually succeeded in doing that before. So record, yeah. tour, same time. Yeah, let, I get lots going on. <laughs> There's differing opinions among artists out there, but do you typically like to tour? Or? You know, touring's been a thing that we have really gradually ramped up throughout the years. Uh, for quite a while, uh, the project never even played live. Um, so it's, yeah, it's been a slow, a slow trajectory, but touring is bittersweet. It's really fun, uh, and it's really hard and miserable all at the same time. So I like to, uh, I mean, compared to like most professional artists, I think Mesmore probably tours on the, uh, lower frequency side of the spectrum, but I'd like to go on tour, you know, once or twice a year. Going back, you're from the Pacific Northwest, correct? Yes. That's an area where grunge, I'm sure you're aware, was kind of huge back in the day. And still to this day, there's a lot of legendary grunge bands still kind of out there doing it. But were you at all influenced by grunge or, you know, what are some of your first memories of music in general? I'm not super influenced by grunge directly, but I did listen to like Nirvana growing up. Uh, I liked that band a lot. I, I still think they're a good band and I've actually developed more of an appreciation for other grunge bands uh, as a metalhead. Uh, it wasn't as much part of my trajectory to get into extreme music, but now that I'm there, I can appreciate like bands like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden a lot more. Uh, cause they're yeah. pretty heavy and kind of metal. It's certainly something I appreciate. Yeah. Uh, pop sensibility is like, it's a fine line. Uh, but you do want something engaging and catchy about your music. Uh, most, I mean, some artists don't at all, but even within, uh, extreme music, you, you don't want to go too far, but you, you want, you know, you want your riff to get stuck in your head. When you were younger, what what were some of your first, you know, connections with music or art in general? Maybe it wasn't music that captivated you first. Maybe it was cinema. Maybe it was painting, whatever. What was it about, you know, art in general that captivated you? And then moving on from there, who were some of the first, you know, musicians that you connected with? It was definitely music for me first. I come from a musical family. So from a very young age, I was playing drums and guitar and, uh, learning from my family members and also taking lessons and then becoming more self-taught as I kind of went down my own uh, niche path there. Uh, but yeah, first, first memories are like, you know, I grew up like really uh, religious in an evangelical Christian family. So for the first chunk of my life, I was uh, really only allowed to listen to Christian music and uh, with the exception of Weird Al. So uh definitely have a lot of fond memories listening to Weird Al uh cuz that that was my first exposure in a lot of cases to those hit songs his version uh, uh and then I listened to like the heavier side of Christian music I was really into like POD was my favorite band when I was a kid um and then kind of uh throughout the years as I was exposed to more uh people and more music through public school and, and even through church, I started to like classic rock. My parents liked that too. That was mostly okay. Um, and classic rock, uh, got me into heavy music in the sense that it was like, 
the first bands I got like really into and was kind of emulating their style was like the Doors and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, um, which kind of turned into liking Black Sabbath, which got me into more metal from there on the like stoner doom side, which eventually opened up into more extreme stuff. And I was also influenced by music that, uh, my, my brothers were listening to at the time, which was more experimental on the side of like Radiohead, Cigarose, Godspeed, kind of, uh, you know, post-rock entered, entered, uh, my, my world as well. And, you know, like late middle school, early high school kind of started with those like long form songs being an influence as well. I did do some research on you and I know you did an article a couple years ago where you listed your top five most influential albums and two of those records obviously but one of them might not surprise people obviously it was wolves in the throne room i can't remember which wolves in the throne room record it was um but then there was enya on there as well yeah what is it about those two artists obviously they're kind of polar opposites and maybe there's like the levity and the weight of the emotions that those artists and those records convey but so maybe it's not too weird but what was it about like those two records that are complete polar opposites sonically that kind of you connected with it's the melodies the melancholic melodies and how they tap into certain emotions like sadness but also longing yearning uh there's a strong sense of that uh, that i hear in both of those bands and uh probably some overlap in uh european folk influence gaelic celtic folk influence i know i'm obviously for enya but you know when i listen to wolves there's plenty of uh scandinavian influence but i wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of those lines blur a little bit with the the folk vibes and yeah it's just um it's just those 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 crushing sad uh full of longing melodies uh, in both uh, circumstances, often on the synth uh, and yeah, more so with the voice, but it gives me a, a similar, a similar feeling. The album was uh, two hunters by the way, for, right, for, okay. for wolves and some of their other albums uh, don't fit as much into specifically what I'm describing here, but two, two hunters and, most of Enya's discography uh, do evoke similar emotions for me. When you're writing, do you focus more on feeling or technicality? And I know this might be an obvious question just based on what you just said, but how do you narrow it down to making sure that it sounds good sonically, but it also conveys a feeling of obviously if people listen to Mismore, it's very melancholic, very gloomy, I guess, for lack of a better word, where do you find this, like this middle ground of what you want to convey while making sure it sounds pleasant to the listener, but also making sure you convey what you want them to feel? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a a balance of, of things, uh, and, a and a, a balance that's constantly maintained throughout the process. But, there's some natural order to it, I think, in the sense that 
I'm moved to write music and share artistically from my feelings and thoughts. And so I'm not thinking about anything technical at first. It's me sitting alone with my acoustic guitar. That's how I write music and just emoting through the instrument. And when that feels like I'm saying the thing I, I want to say, uh, satisfying some emotion that I'm feeling, uh, then that likely becomes a, a memorable riff that might make it into a song. And I kind of build on it from there, uh, just using emotion. Uh, and I guess maybe you could argue there's some sort of technical interplay happening because obviously as the emotions get channeled and the riffs come out, the, I'm checking them against just my ear, which is my subconscious of what I already know I like and what I already know sounds good to my ear. It's a very subconscious process, but um, th that would kind of put some checks and balances into like, okay, well, this is just raw emotion. Does that sound good to me? Uh, and so that happens for a while. And then once you kind of carve that into a song that you're feeling pretty all right about, uh, a more refined writing process, kind of setting it in stone, mapping it out on the, the DAW, the digital audio workstation, in my case, Logic, would, would come next. And then I would start building uh, a song from there, which is when my brain switches a little bit into the technical side because I have to start engineering and producing these melodies and riffs and songs into finished products that uh, hit the mark. And so while I'm tracking, there's definitely the active balance of, of playing the engineer, producer, and playing the artist, uh, which isn't easy. Um, because when those are two different roles, you can just focus on one and not the other. But I've, uh, you know, continually tried to get better at the process of setting myself up for success technically so that I don't really have to think about it too much and then getting in the zone for the performance and making sure that the performance is good and that nothing clipped or peaked and everything was running how it was supposed to listen back a couple times, do a few takes. Okay, good. Move on. Make sure, but you got to, you know, get in the, really get in the zone for the performance as well. So, and then after, after tracking winds down, uh, the brain goes more into the technical side as I start to edit the files and, uh, either mix them myself or send them off to get mixed and, do lots of critical listening. And I mean, the, the emotional side of the brain isn't turned off at that point because technical uh, preferences and decisions affect still how the song is going to come across and portray the emotion. Like Prosaic, the new record, for example, one of the things I really love about the production and the mixing is that it's got a lot of pleasant, crispy, high-end and high-mid that add uh, you know, to speak poetically, extra spit to the vocal, uh, extra fire to the guitars. So things are sizzling and effervescent sounding and bright and punchy. And to me, that conveys ferocity 
and uh, and emotions like that. So, uh, you know, technical and emotional are engaged the entire time throughout the process. But I think it starts more emotional and ends more technical and kind of uh, is is both evenly in the middle of the process. Do you feel that this again, Mismore kind of known for that doom metal, black metal fusion? Do you feel that these two genres kind of give you even more of a a palette to work with, so to speak, to paint these images and paint this, you know, art that you're putting out there? Obviously, black metal is so easy to blend and bend all these different genres together. We've seen it done countless times with shoegaze, death metal, whatever you want to call it. We can go over different subgenres ad nauseum, but do you feel that this kind of gives you more free reign than, let's say, if you were just doing you know, indie rock, right? Do you feel like you have more to work with? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I definitely have more to work with than if I were trying to do only one of those subgenres. And it's an unintentional choice because I just, when I started the project, was uh, I wasn't able to choose between those two subgenres how I wanted to express myself because I love both of them so much. And um, although I think they have a lot of similarities in their melancholic melodies, I, uh, I think black metal for me is better, uh, at expressing anxiety and doom metal is better for expressing depression. And those are two big, uh, emotions for me that I'm trying to, uh, get, therapeutic sort of catharsis from through my music. So uh, it's great to have both on the table and uh, also helps because I, I like to make long songs, apparently. And it's it helps to kind of, I think, tell a story and take the listener on a journey to not just be doing like a 20 minute blasting song. Uh, it can it can slow down. It can turn into a drone, get ambient, pick back up, get fast again. And since I've already kind of laid down the foundational stones of where this project goes, and that'll continue to evolve. But none of those moves, I don't think at this point, seem weird to my listeners. Uh, where it's like, okay, we were like doing this like uh, second wave. Norwegian black metal style for a while. And now we're playing, we're at 60 BPM. What happened? Like, uh, that, that's not strange for Mismore. And I don't think hits my listeners at us in a strange way anymore. And it's definitely nice to not be so specifically pigeonholed into like, I only play black metal. I only play doom metal. And they seem like diametrically opposed genres on their face in terms of tempo but i think there's a lot of of commonality there we'll touch on the music videos later on but this one more specifically for your album construction and whatnot are you taking a lot of inspiration from cinema when it comes to putting albums together and you know knowing when to let things breathe as you just kind of alluded to when slowing things down or you know, the ebb and flow of the record, right? Are you taking a lot of inspiration from cinema or maybe where else are you kind of taking influence from so you can create these unique experiences for your audience? I honestly don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not consciously influenced by cinema, but I would not be surprised if uh, that was part of what was happening. If I, if I have to dissect it, 
probably more classical music that gives me that inspiration to take a longer song and kind of break it up into movements. And, uh, you know, you could take one of my songs and it could probably easily be two songs if you wanted. Uh, but it's just not how I write. And I mean, the new record's a little bit different and, and there are exceptions to this rule, but a lot of Mismore songs, instead of being like A, B, A, B, C, B sort of structure, it's like a for three minutes, B for three minutes, C for three minutes. And any one of those chunks on their own wouldn't make a very interesting song. But when you know that like, it's okay to pace it and uh, you, that to, to expect to not be out of there in four minutes, uh, if you're patient and, and let those movements kind of, uh, I don't know, inf- unfold as as they will naturally, uh, it just, it takes a little longer. And also, um, doom metal itself, it, it just takes more time to get through four times through a riff than it does <laughs> in a faster tempo. So it's, it's just something that has, has been happening for me from an early age, just like writing longer songs, uh, the atmosphere that that creates. I, I see where you're coming from with the, the cinema thing, but that's not conscious for me, but it's a good, it's a good analogy because it's got like this arc to it. Right. Yeah. I think, and I, I talked to, I've talked to musicians before who just say, and you, you said this earlier, right? It's you sit with an acoustic guitar, you write riffs, like it just comes organically. Right. And I'm sure that's kind of how you narrow down. Like, I, I guess how, I don't know how many songs you usually go through when you're trying to decide what goes on a record and what doesn't, but I'm sure a lot of that just comes down to trusting your own ear, right? And trusting your gut to what you think sounds right. And obviously that's probably obviously why you've, you know, garnered a fan base is because they connect with what you like and, you know, vice versa. But um, I guess just to ask that question, how many songs do you typically go through? Maybe just for prosaic. Uh, I only ever write the amount of songs that go oh, on wow. the record. I don't demo. Uh, and I think there must be a lot of uh, checks and balances internally and subconsciously going on to get the song to that point uh, and know that it's going to go on the record. Like if, if I wrote a song and it wasn't feeling like it was going to go on the record, uh, like three quarters of the way through the process or something, I would fix that. And I wouldn't just have that be an extra song and then get to the end with extras and see what the strongest ones are. In my mind, I'm usually writing like, okay, it'll probably be a double LP. I'll probably want four long songs. And, uh, so it's, there's a beginning, two middles and an end. There's kind of already a natural order of thing. I'm thinking about the format and I wasn't always in the early days. I wasn't at all, uh, because I didn't have a record label and whatnot, but now I'm kind of thinking about the format and the listening experience. And, um, I kind of set out thinking, well, my songs usually end up long. So like a full length record is four or five songs. And then I write those songs 
and I write them in order also. Uh, so it's, it's more like I'm writing prosaics only 45 minutes, but usually I'm writing an, an hour piece of music and I start from the beginning and write, go at, uh, write linearly through to the end and then divide it up into four, essentially. (laughs) It's a weird, it's a weird way to do it. And like, I probably, I probably could benefit from demoing more, but (laughs) Mismore's not, Mismore's just not like that. Uh, yeah, there, I, I've already, I'm such a careful and intentional person. Uh, it's actually, it actually plagues me often, but it, it's in every step of the way with my songwriting. So there just wouldn't ever be a scenario in Mismore where one of the songs didn't make it on the record. That song wouldn't have gotten that far or wouldn't have gotten written if it was that type of song. How did you land on No Place to Arrive as the single for this? It's my favorite song on the record, uh, at least Simple right now. U- usually, uh, you know, I go through phases with songs, and so it might be uh, true to only say that it's my favorite song right now. But that I didn't pick that as the single until the end, and I thought... You know, we, we just, I decided with profound lore that due to the nature of my really long songs that we should only release one song beforehand. So it was like, wow, okay, I have four, only four options and it needs to like show you kind of what you're going to get on the record, represent it well. And it also needs to start with a bang and like stay engaging. And to me, that's, that's no place to arrive. If people have followed this project since its inception or shortly thereafter, since, you know, the first records, it's kind of been a a journey of your, and as you alluded to earlier, your religious background growing up, it's been kind of a journey from losing faith to becoming agnostic and eventually, you know, atheism. But on this record in particular, you decided to move away from those themes. At what point did you know you wanted to step away from that? And what led to that? Um... I think I knew I wanted to step away from that at the same moment that I knew that I wanted to share again and write another record. Um, I've spent a lot of time processing this issue in my life and through Mismore have really gotten a lot of, of healing and uh, acceptance and closure on this. And Karen was kind of, the last thing that I needed to at least hang this up for now. Um, Karen being, you know, about erecting monuments to subjects or events in your life that you need not return to because you have finality uh, and closure, healing and acceptance on those things. Um, So I feel like Karen was, was a really good, recap of what I had been through and kind of just memorial for, for God in my life, but also talking about it and, and, um, the journey that the painful journey that is healing from, from that kind of stuff, from trauma and, and changing ideas from indoctrination and and that whole thing. So, um, you know, Wits End was a bit of a departure, uh, which came between Karen and and Prosaic. It's it's an EP, so it's 
a little bit tangential. Um, but that, that was also, you know, that was for me, that was the shift in like kind of writing about humanity versus myself. And, uh, the topic of God was still present in wit's end, but it was more about, uh, it was more about droves of people being influenced by bad ideas of which, uh, religions are some of, and then with prosaic, I just, I just feel like there's nothing really left for me to say about this topic right now. And that it's not something that I need to do and that it would be, uh, unhealthy, counterproductive, uh, and, just weird if I needed to continue to always talk about that. Well, then I'm clearly doing something wrong and not healing from this. So I just, I'm thinking about other things. I'm feeling other things and life goes on post belief. And that's kind of where prosaic enters. Yeah. The words you use to describe prosaic, you know, there was purpose, futility, absurdity. What do these words mean to you in terms of what you wanted to conceptualize with this record? So that's a good question and an interesting one for me because I started out making this record as almost the anti-concept record. Uh, It's not supposed to be profound. It's not supposed to be epic and grandiose. It's not supposed to be some masterful thesis on some topic. It's a, it's much more slice of life and from the hip and each song, although now kind of like after the fact, I can extrapolate this through line and kind of tell you what the concept of the record is. When I was making it, each song is about a different thing. Um, but those, those topics that you brought up to, to, to paint the picture broadly, prosaic is about everyday life the grind, uh, and work and finding meaning and purpose, uh, in, in your life, uh, kind of the paradox that work is in that sense, because it does give us a reason for, for being and for getting up every day and, you know, the purpose of doing tasks and, and having an assignment in this life. Uh, and in that sense, it propels you and even inspires you if you like, uh, the type of work that you do. Um, and it's also the thorn in your side because it's annoying and, uh, you don't want to do it and you just wish that you didn't have to sometimes. Uh, and then often when you get to a point when, uh, you get a break from it and don't have to do it, you get anxiety about the fact that you have nothing to do and you have no purpose. So I find this absurd and there's a certain futility on the one hand about thinking about us toiling away in a meaningless universe. Uh, but there's also so much, uh, meaning that we can ascribe to that. And it can be such a positive thing at the same time. The album name prosaic kind of alludes to that duality of the ordinary person, right? The ordinary life. And I I like the way you put it, just like, you know, you wake up, you find meaning in the things that you do, but those things are also the things that eat away at you. And those are the things that, you know, cause your anxieties and cause your depression and cause your, I don't know. It's kind of like being in love, right? It's, you know, love can 
be the most euphoric thing on earth, but it can also be the most challenging and depressing thing on earth. Right. So I don't know. I find that like the way you explained it is it makes total sense. That's, that's very poetic. That's, that's awesome. Very ironic uh, choice of words, but yeah, I, I love that. It, it is ironic using the word poetic with a <laughs> prosaic, but uh, yeah, yeah, dude, that's, that's awesome for sure. Going to the music video for the single, how do you come up with the, are you, who are you working with to come up with these music videos and these ideas and the cinematography behind it? They're very eerie, very melancholic and very, we've used that word a few times throughout this, but that with Ms. Moore, it's kind of a uh, synonymous, but who are you working with to create these ideas and, you know, make sure that it aligns well with the atmosphere you're trying to create? Yeah, for sure. So there are two Ms. Moore music videos uh, so far for the project. The first one came out with Wits End, and that was an animated video uh, by Zev Deans. And the new video, the second video, is for Prosaic, for the song No Place to Arrive. And it's also by Zev Deans. Um, although it's live action, uh, there is, there's animation, 3D, and AI in it. Um, and so, so Zev was the director and uh, editor of the music video. And he had uh, one person with him, Brendan McGowan, who shot the video, director of photography. Um, and myself and Emma Ruth Rundle came up with kind of the concept and creative direction uh, or story of the video. I, I knew that I wanted to basically put, portray the front cover of the record and be doing work. I wanted uh, the, the video to kind of match the album's themes in the sense that it was hard realism. It wasn't surreal. It was about focus and meditation and doing a task and not being distracted. Uh, but obviously a guy chopping wood for 10 minutes is not very interesting. <laughs> um, so uh, Zev and Emma kind of both both contributed in different ways of, of the idea of, well, what if I'm being distracted and called away from the task and uh, by, by something that's interacting with me from a surreal world? Uh, which is great because Zev wanted to make a big, surreal, classic, you know, Mismore imagery looking video that looked like Zdzislaw Baczynski artwork. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's awesome. But like, it just so happens that that's exactly what I'm trying to not do right now. <laughs> um, but it, it, it really worked uh, perfectly. Uh, Emma's, uh, Emma's big contribution uh, was how how the surreal world and the real world would interact through fibers, uh, uh, kind of and tentacles coming out and grabbing my attention uh, and not just another realm that I wander off into. And it creates the conflict of trying to focus and be mindful and getting distracted and letting yourself escape. Um, so those three people, and then of course, uh, there was a couple really talented, uh, animators that did the 3d and the, uh, the AI work. Uh, I think, yeah, Adam Espino and Wolf Tijuana, and I didn't consult with them directly creatively. Zev was the, 
the buffer there of just like, okay, Zev, we got to show, uh, here, here's what we got to show. Uh, I don't care how you do it. I thought Zev was going to hand animate it at first, like he did wit's end, but that just takes so long that, uh, when he, when he presented the, the visuals, uh, and was like, I'm using a team of, of other people to create this other world. I was like, wow, look at that. I mean, it looks, looks so incredible. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's all the people, um, all the people made that video what it is. And I think we, it achieved the, the vision that I set out to achieve perfectly. So I'm very grateful to all those wonderful creative folks for, for doing that with me. I have a weird, maybe perhaps more philosophical question, but do you enjoy the feeling of writing music more or do you enjoy the feeling of the, I guess, catharsis of what music does for you more? I don't think I could pick. For Mismore, they're they're completely intertwined, but I do uh, do other creative projects with people like, like uh, producing uh, records and I'm, you know, more detached from the emotional catharsis there. And I still find it immensely gratifying and fun to help craft a record. Um, but then when we're talking about Mismore, there's this other, like, I'm only making this music because I just kind of have to for my own sanity. It's how I process things. Um, right. So I can't really separate the riffs from the emotional processing uh, unless we're talking about, you know, a different a different, uh, musical venture. And then, then it's easy for me to do. And, and it's, it's really fun to just work on music, but I'm not sure that it goes the other way where, uh, it, you know, well, I guess it does. Yeah. Emotional catharsis is just a good thing. Uh, and I hope yeah. that, that uh, other people's music, at least other people, the extreme music is, uh, doing that for the artist and or the audience as well. Where do you think you would be right now if you didn't launch Mismore? Uh, man, that's an interesting question. I really have no idea. Uh, I imagine I would be playing music in some fashion and processing my loss of faith in some fashion. Uh, I just, it's, it's, it's become part of my identity. So it's, it's really hard to say. We'd be going back 11 years on the tree of possible experiences and thinking about how, how I could have processed that loss in faith without creating this creative outlet. I don't know if that, I don't know what the other alternatives are, if it would have been possible for me. Wow. It just, it had yeah. to happen. It was a necessity. Yeah. It seems like it, it was just this crutch that you needed and people that have followed along with your journey, obviously, and obviously you've talked about it at not or at length about, you know, how this was very much a way for you to get through those emotions of losing faith and, um, you know, kind of escaping that part of your life. But yeah, it's, it's, seems like it's just been a crutch for you this entire time. So yeah, it's hard to think of other ways that you might've been able to process that in a way that was, you know, artistic and 
the way you needed it to, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, it would probably still be an ongoing process, I would imagine, because I, I get some sort of uh, comfort from just playing music in general uh, or doing art in general. I also like to draw. Uh, but creating a project that's specifically about the thing you're processing instead of just kind of getting a secondhand benefit from hitting drums and stuff like that, uh, actually like actually processing the content, uh, has, has, I think fast tracked my, my healing process, even though it still took about, you know, the better part of 10 years. People know you go by ALN for Mismore, the project. Do you think that allowed you to maybe get a little more settled in or more comfortable in what you were trying to express because you could kind of detach? I don't know. Maybe it's weird detaching your, you know, I guess, government name from something. Do you think that like you found this comfort in attaching it to just initials or like this entity that I guess maybe in a way ALN is like this creation of what? Mismore is on a, I don't know, more of a an unanimated, I guess, sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, at fr in the very beginning of the project, I was really embarrassed about. I wasn't planning on sharing the music at all. Uh, I, I made the first Mismore record in my bedroom. Uh, it was just for me. It was a form of prayer and meditation. I was still a struggling Christian at the time, and it was the only way that I felt I could genuinely pray. Uh, and so when I got to the end of the making the record, I had told a couple friends about it, and I, I got the, reac the reaction that they were um, really surprised that I wasn't planning on at least putting it on the internet for someone to find. And, uh, so that encouraged me to do that. Um, but I was, I was still, I would still tell you I was a Christian at the time that that record came out. Uh, it would probably have a lot of caveats around what that meant. Uh, but, that's an experience that I wasn't sure anyone in the extreme metal world or never, uh, nonetheless black metal world could relate to. It's very, uh, confidently anti-Christian satanic. Uh, and I thought that that would kind of be a laughing stock to that world. Interesting. Uh, so I didn't want, I wasn't planning on trying to get, people to hear it and understand it. But once I decided to make it public, I didn't want anything to be discernible about what it was about at, at the time. Now, now the reissue of the record has the lyrics and everything. And I, I'm happy to be vulnerable and, and talk about that and share, uh, share that record and all the records with people that can relate to it. But at the time I did not feel that way at all. And there on the first CD, the first version of the release, there's absolutely, there's no lyrics. The only text on the songs are just called one, two, three, and four in Roman numerals. The only other text on it is ALN and there's the Mismore logo. Uh, so I kind of just wanted people to be like, what is that? Right. And, and then 
listen to it, not be able to understand it and connect with the riffs and the feeling in the album and go, Oh, I can, I can relate to that. It feels sad. It feels angry, whatever. They don't need to know what it's about. They don't need to know that I'm, that I'm a struggling Christian playing stereotypically satanic anti-Christian music. Um, so I, I felt embarrassed about the content. Uh, I felt that it was like just so personal and, uh, that, that people just wouldn't understand. Um, so I think using the initials did, did help kind of, uh, I could just be mysterious and it could just be about the music and the emotion and not the person, not even the lyrics. Uh, obviously that has gradually changed over time. And now I think a lot of people even know what my name is. I don't care. Uh, I, I think a, an important part of what I do is actually connecting with people who can relate to my experience and uh, doing something that's that's bigger than me. So now, I mean, uh, my face has been on a magazine now at this point. I mean, there's no yep. mystery about who the person that makes Mismore is, and I'm happy about that. Uh, but that was a process. And at first I was like, oh my God, I don't want anyone to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> at what point were you able to get past those, um, you know, maybe a little bit of self-consciousness about all of it? There wasn't really a point. It was so gradual. Like the next Mismore release was an EP. And instead of just using Roman numerals, it was Roman numerals plus a few Hebrew characters for each song mm -hmm. title. And there was, I think, one English sentence printed on the tape. And I, I wanted to start giving people something to latch on to. Uh, but right. it, it, at first it was, it was nothing. And then it was a sentence with a couple, uh, you know, with a title in a different language. And then the next release that came out had lyrics, uh, and a Roman numeral with an English title. And, you know, it just, it was, it was definitely very gradual, uh, of a that process, but I, I, I'd say, I mean, the first full length I released that had lyrics and like felt like it wanted to be known, uh, and, and it was intentionally more knowable was Yod. And that was in 2016. Man, you went from anonymity to the cover of decibel magazine <laughs> That's what right. a journey i know what, yeah. how surreal was that it's it's surreal it's so cool i i still don't really understand it <laughs> but you know being a one a one person project that came from such obscurity uh to just be on the cover by myself like that to, it, it feels like you know the the world of metal is uh giving me some sort of recognition of saying, you know, we see you and uh, think what you do is important. And uh, that's just, it's not lost on me. It's really, really cool. It's really special. That's awesome, man. That is such a milestone for any extreme music artist. Like the greats have been on there. It's, it's such a cool story that, you know, you were, you said you told your friends, you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to put this out there. Like, I don't know if I want to put my name on it. And now your name is, or the, I guess the band name and maybe ALN is on news racks at, you know, wherever people get their magazines or it's showing up in people's mailboxes. And it's just like, Oh, there's ALN on the cover of decibel magazine. Right. I'm sure. That's just, 
Where, like, what is that call like? What it, who calls you? Like, and what's your reaction initially? Is it just like jaw drop? Or are you like, are you serious? Like, what is that initial like call like? Well, like like a lot of the the answers uh, I've given so far on this podcast, it was a process. It wasn't just <laughs> like you, you. I didn't just get a phone call that was like okay. Mister Decibel wants to put you on the cover. It, it was like it's kind of like a a game of chess in the sense that like it has to be the right moment for you in your career and you have to be connected to the right people to get to the point where that could be suggested to decibel and they could say yeah that's the right moment for that let's do it so lots of lots of hard work and lots of uh slowly knowing more and more people and putting out records that these people care about also you have to have the record and be a person that people want to support and a person that people know um so it t i would say i've been working on this for the past 10 years and it just finally yeah. clicked you know in a yeah. sense sure that's humbling that you're like man people care that much now and that's that's awesome man two questions left one of them's kind of a fun one but right now who are some of your favorite newer black metal bands based in the u.s or from the u.s wow good question i don't listen to a ton of new music um black metal bands from the u.s that i'm excited about right now i mean i still like wolves in the throne room yep. I'm, I'm glad that they are still a band putting out records going on tour uh they're gonna hearing a new ones in the works right now to be I've, announced i've heard that yeah they're if not already they're gonna become uh, a serious legacy act that sure. will, i mean yeah. they're they're the biggest usbm band at this point i probably sure. and and so i'm 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 proud of those guys i've liked them for almost since, since almost the beginning and uh but i also listen to more like black metal from Europe, like pr probably one of my favorite black metal artists that's still making music is Cold World, which mm -hmm. is a one man project from Germany. Uh, gotcha. And I, I, ha I have, uh, I'm one of those people that like, I fall in love with certain records and I listen to them forever. And so I, I'll always listen to every new record he puts out, but like the first couple are still the ones on repeat for me because uh, of just how my brain works, I guess. But that's probably a unsatisfactory answer because I gave you no. one, one American and one European artist that no, that's fine. Aren't, aren't even necessarily putting out brand new records right now. But one last question for you. I ask this to everybody who's recently put out a new record. Looking back on Prosaic, what are you most proud of and why? Um, I'm really proud that the whole experiment worked for me in the sense that I set out to make a record in a different way uh, intentionally than I had before out of curiosity uh, because I want to interest myself and engage myself in new ways uh, out of self-love. And I didn't want to feel like I had to suffer over making a record. Any time that I want to share, I have to, you know, dredge up some 
horrible experience and uh, obsess over the nuances and I just that just wasn't feeling good. And I've done that so many times before that the concept to the approach was, what if I could make a record that I didn't obsess over, that I did my best at, uh, and didn't get to the point where I felt like I was in the pit, losing perspective, beating a dead horse. What if I didn't have to suffer to make a record and it could still be, if not just as good, uh, really good? Uh, what if, what if I could make it fun? What if I could streamline it? And, um, I'm just going to make that record for me because I'm curious about that. Wouldn't it be great if I could do that? Uh, and I just had my fingers crossed the whole time that I, the final product would be good and wouldn't sound like I didn't try that hard or, uh, the ideas weren't good enough or, you know, that it wasn't good enough. I wanted to find the line between you can do better. That's not good enough. And okay, you've gone too far and you need to rein it in and come back. You got to find the straight and narrow and make a record that, you know, I, I did plenty. It's not that, uh, you know, they were one take wonders or anything. I was like, cool, printed, it's done. There was lots of, <laughs> lots of time went into it. Uh, but I kept this, this idea in the back of my mind, practicing this idea the whole time as I made it. So that when situations came up that inevitably came up of, uh, well, now I've lost perspective. I'm lost. I've done nine takes of this now. And I, they all sound, I, I, they don't sound any different to me anymore. Like I've done it too many times. When you come to that moment, then you take a break, come back and pull up, you know, probably the like third or fourth take. And that was the best one. You could, you got them all in front of you. The first couple you're warming up, the last couple uh, you're tired. The ones in the middle are the good ones. Pick one of those. It's good enough. Move on. And to just actively practice that instead of uh, obsessing and uh, going off the rails and get, getting to a dark place with it uh, and just, you know, stick to that and, and, and see if at the end you like the end result. And if you don't, Throw it away and make the obsesso record, you know, throw it away and make the fucking the suffering record. Uh, so <laughs> so I'm just really glad that that it worked because I'm super proud of the record. I love it. I think it's my most uh, kind of different and interesting and original record in that sense that I've, I've kind of I feel like I've uh, transcended the kind of box that I've put myself in with Mismore of what Mismore has to be. And now I'm just free to do whatever I want with it. And it feels really good. Awesome. Aelin, thanks so much for doing this, my friend. Good luck on the tour. Congrats on the new record. The new record by Mismore Prosaic out July 21st. Thanks so much for doing this, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back, and thanks so much for checking out that interview with ALN, the man behind the solo blackened doom metal project, Mismore. The new record, Prosaic, came out just days after that interview, and 
what an emotional roller coaster that record is. It's just phenomenal from start to finish. If you're into doom metal, if you're into black metal, there's no reason not to check out or listen to this Mismore record in full. Like I said, just a phenomenal release yet again from Mismore. But before we go any further, I do want to play my song of the week. And this week, that song is Demon by the black metal band, The Mosaic Window, who will join the podcast at a later date. But again, this song is called Demon off their latest record, Plight of Acceptance. Let's check it out and then wrap this up with my recommendation of the week.
That was Demon by the Mosaic Window off the record Plight of Acceptance. Before we go, I do want to give my recommendation of the week. And this week, my recommendation is Lipoma's Odes to Suffering. Lipoma is a gore grind band based out of the northeastern portion of the United States. And as you can tell by the title of the album, a lot of themes based around suffering, medical terminology, medical related topics. But yeah, a very riff heavy, groovy gore grind record that anybody that's a fan of gore grind will enjoy. Such a great listen, such fun listening to this record. One of my favorite releases so far this year. So here's my signature catchphrase. I can't recommend it enough. Before we leave you today, I want to remind everyone to follow me on the socials I gave you at the top of the episode and follow and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. And if you do dig the show, leave a five-star review. That always helps me out, and it's the easiest way to support the show. But until next time, friends, we'll see you right back here in the catacombs.